0: Bright Metal Audio presents The Blood Miles by Andrew Moody. Read by the author. Volume 1. Chapter 6. My hands clawed at my throat as I struggled to breathe. Although the wire of the cage had caught most of the larger chunks, it hadn't done anything to stop the shockwave that had flattened me against the back wall of my container and forced all the air from my body. When I finally managed to get my lungs working, The air they sucked in was full of fine white cement dust, which immediately made me double over with a fit of coughing. In between the coughs, I could hear shouting, but it seemed to be coming from far away. In a few more seconds I could hear words, but now my brain couldn't seem to understand them. It was like my head was full of wool. By the time I'd got my shirt back over my mouth and straightened up, orange emergency lights had come on. Figures were moving through the dust like ghosts. A man in patched overalls with an afro and a sack who peered at me. A woman carrying a loaded crossbow passed the same way. "'Hey, this one is still—' she began. "'Oh, it's a guy.' She vanished as the Afro-man returned bearing something heavy in a sack. Next came a short man with a shaved head and a topknot, leading two of the sheep by the scruff of the neck. Two others went past, awkwardly carrying the cage that had all the rats in it. As my ears became less dull, I began to hear animals barking and baying, and somewhere, just for a few seconds, somebody screaming— I came to the front of the cage and now I could see the jagged hole that had been blown in the wall. All the other cages in the room seemed to have been opened and emptied, including the one containing the man from Gaia. Let me out, I croaked as the short man rushed past me with another sack. Just here for the animals, ma'am, he answered. I tried it with the Afro man and received a similar response. Hurry, shouted the woman's voice through the dust. They're coming. Desperately, I turned my attention to the door of my cage. I tried kicking it. Levering it open to get a hand out, but the hinges and steel of the frame were just too solid. I remembered my discovery about the catch and cursed that I still didn't have a knife or anything that I could slide through the crack. Except I did. I grabbed the book off the mattress and shoved the stiff leather into the gap between the door and the frame. Even as I began, there was a pounding coming from the next room, and the gyans because that's obviously who they were, began racing back toward the hole. Something shining whirled past and embedded itself in the shoulder of the short man, causing him to drop the cat he was carrying. The woman turned and fired her crossbow back at whoever had thrown the thing. In a moment, they had all retreated back into the darkness. Meanwhile, I held my breath and focused on the catch, and suddenly felt it give way. I fell out, rolled, and found myself staring up at Liam's face. He gave a smile, drew a razor from his bandolier, and collapsed at my feet. As his body fell, the man from Gaia lurched forward out of the dust. He had blood all over his face and a metal bar in his hand. "'You should go,' he said, gesturing to the hole in the wall. "'There's more of them coming.' Then he was gone. I heard grunts, thuds, and more screaming coming from the direction in which he had vanished. I picked myself up and scrambled into the darkness. Immediately now I found myself blundering blindly through a maze of tunnels and passages, and I still don't know how I made it through.' Sometimes the noises made me think that I was following the Gaians. Sometimes I seemed to be walking by myself. At least once I turned away from a passage that carried the sounds of what I guessed were people chasing me. I found another passage where there was a hiss like rushing water and a flight of concrete stairs that led to a larger tunnel and a larger pipe. Finally I rounded a bend and saw a little patch of flickering light that grew and grew until it became sunlight shining through the bushes. I ran toward it and rolled out of the tunnel down into a narrow gully choked with bones, fallen trees, and a rusted refrigerator. The pipe crossed the depression and rose to disappear over the opposite lip. When I had collected the steady myself, I crawled up the slope and began to follow it. It wasn't the main pipe that I had been following before I was captured, but I soon discovered that it rejoined that pipe after about half a kilometre. I found a tap and said a prayer of thanks to whatever luck or providence had saved me, and continued my journey but I was more careful now. The business with the alchemists had cured me of my hope that the water pipe would give me an easy route. It seemed to me now that sticking close to the pipeline would expose me to more danger, so I walked apart from it wherever I could. For a while I travelled only at night, camping out in caves or gullies while the sun was up. During the long sunlight hours, when I wasn't sleeping or foraging for food, I read the road book, Apart from my clothes and the coins in my boot, it was the one possession that I had been able to bring out of Ockham, and it seemed more valuable to me because of that. As I read on, I learned more of the history of the conflict between the Autonomous Zone and the central government. I read about how the Pantark had sent in inspectors and negotiators, and how the Territory Council had expelled and imprisoned them. I read about how the Council had used a period of formal revaluation to stall while it conducted a secret military build-up through arms deals negotiated with the same foreign corporate entity that had supplied the original gene tech. In exchange for their ordnance, the corp gained greater influence along with water and land rights. They set to diverting rivers and draining lakes for their massive factory farms. Ultimately, these interventions would bring disastrous changes to the weather patterns and soil of the territory. But that would all take years to show up. Three years after the re-evaluation, the Council issued a Declaration of Independence, turning the Territory into the autonomous zone and launching, on the same day, preemptive strikes on Central installations along its borders. These attacks failed completely. The moment AZ troops began their mobilisation, Central dropped pulse bombs wiping out all electronic signals across the Territory. Robbed of communication, the Council began to lose control. Soon the cities of the Territory fell to fighting each other, and in the background... From some secret lab deep in the interior, the tox quietly slipped free from containment. As I travelled further, I could see the relics of this history all around me. That night I travelled through rigid deserts, where ancient mobile sprinkler booms sagged over furrows turned to sand. I came to burned-out settlements, abandoned roadblocks and barricades. In one ghost town somebody had built a pile of skulls. In another, a dozen handless skeletons hung between the portico pillars of the town hall. The pipeline also showed the marks of the violence. In some places it was blackened and dented, where it had been attacked and patched. In others, forks, branches and dead ends split away, meandering north and south. Sometimes it even doubled back and seemed to run west. And yet I still found functioning taps here and there. I kept myself alive by eating lizards and snakes that liked to sum themselves on the support pylons. Sometimes I'd find a berry bush. My senses of taste and colour were still not what they had been. But I never managed to poison myself. Meanwhile, the pipeline itself was raising a lot of questions for me. As I read on through the book, the picture I got of Central was so scary that I thought about turning back. When the Council announced its act of independence, Central had declared every person within the AZ to be an outlaw and shut down the pipeline, which, with the draining of the rivers and lakes, meant that many towns simply ran out of water. Thousands died before the Pantark relented. This all made Central seem brutal, and there was also the threat that Evarakis had given us of the bigger cleanse still to come. But the very existence of the pipeline showed us that the Pantarch was the one sustaining the rebel territory. Independence was a fantasy. We were all dependent on Central's indulgence. The Pantark could have finished us off long ago if he'd wanted. Meanwhile, as these thoughts were going round in my mind, I also had another reason to be unsettled. Someone was tracking me. Now and then, when I was walking in the darkness, I would hear an engine in the distance or see lights moving back and forward in the low country. One morning, after I had finished getting water and was heading back into the hills for shelter, I saw the lights of a vehicle parked on a ridge to the west and a tiny figure standing beside it. I dropped to the ground until it had disappeared but I worried that the movement of my long shadow might have already given me away. After that, I travelled even further from the pipeline, keeping to gullies and creek beds. The land rose and fell, and the air grew colder. I spent the night shivering in my clothes. Food became harder to find, and the trees I encountered were mostly dead or dying. Then I came to a burnt forest, and on the other side of it, found myself staring at a ridge of stony mountains that spread themselves across the horizon. When I looked north, they vanished into blue-gray hills that seemed to go on forever. I had the sense that the same was true to the south as well, but my view in this direction was obscured by one large mountain that jutted out from the range and towered into the clouds. Far away I could see a pale ribbon of road winding east up its flank. That was a low point in my journey. The thought of trying to get over those peaks in the state I was in made my heart sink. And there was worse to come. When I went back to the pipeline, I discovered that it entered in the mountains too, disappearing into a tunnel that was collared with a heavy metal grill. I cursed and sat down in front of it. I had nothing that could bend the bars or break the padlock, nor did I have the energy to scale the cliffs that rose above the tunnel. Would I have to, after all this time, simply turn back? And if I did go back, how far would I have to go? Right back to the bog where I parted from Flex. But there was still that road that I'd seen to the south, If the pipe couldn't take me through the mountain, maybe the road could get me over. That evening, I took a long drink from the last tap, and made my way down through the hills until I found it. It was three days of hard climbing after that. The track looped back and forth up the side of the mountain, and as I went higher, the cloud closed in on me, and it got colder still. The first night on the mountain was almost unbearable, too cold for sleeping and too dark for walking. The second night I wedged myself into an old wombat burrow and shivered until dawn. On the third day, a wind picked up. It blew the fog off the lower parts of the mountain so I could look back over the hills as they faded into the distance. But the upper slopes were still covered, not with fog now, but with dark, cumulus clouds that kept flickering and booming. I began to worry about what would happen if I had to pass through that cloud, yet the prospect of storm clouds at least gave me the hope of quenching my thirst. I had found no springs since I left the pipeline, and except for a few berries, had received no moisture at all. I was parched and starving. Then the slope began to flatten out a bit, as if it was heading toward a shoulder or saddle. There was another switchback, and I found myself at the entrance to a V-shaped valley of shale and boulders. Up ahead, just visible over a rise in the valley floor, I could see a roof of tin and a stone chimney. But directly in front of me, a faded sign on a rusted pole said, Danger! Horeb Pass has been designated a restricted zone by the authority of the Pantar. Tox trace screening in progress. Authorised persons only. After everything I'd been reading and thinking about, it made me laugh. Thank you, Central, I said. Come and get cured, but first we're going to kill you. I wondered what trace screening might mean. What the danger might involve. Was it a checkpoint? A minefield? Was it still in effect? The sign was obviously ancient. Either way, I wasn't going to turn back now. I'd come too far and used up too much of my strength. If the Pantark wanted to put me out of my misery, well, maybe that would be for the best. I grabbed hold of the pole, shook it back and forth a few times, and went on. Looking back now, it just seemed stupid of me to have risked this. As I said, I'd read enough from the roadbook to know what Central could do to people who disobeyed its edicts. Even though I could have no idea about the nature of the danger and how much trouble I was about to get myself into, I should have known something bad would happen. Guessing that any mines or other hazards would be on the valley floor, I used up some of my remaining energy to scramble up one of the side slopes so that I could travel parallel to the track. It made for slower going, but it made me feel safer as I approached the building. Soon I had a better view of it. It looked like an old stone hiker's hut that had been adapted for more modern use. Solar panels on its roof and a small radio mast anchored to the side of its chimney. A few metres away from its open door, I could see a small pool of water then by a spring. The sight of that pool stirred such an intense thirst in me that I wanted to race toward it and plunge my face into the water. But someone else was there, a tall man, bald and completely naked, was standing by the pool washing his body. He had a rifle lying by his feet and a pile of gear heaped up on a small tarp. I moved to a position where I could approach under cover and crept closer. Soon I was able to see that he wasn't just washing himself, but shaving too, lathering his legs and scraping away the hair with a long, sharp knife. When he stood up, I could see that he'd already finished the rest of his body from his eyebrows down, making him look like a disturbingly proportioned child. The man finished the tops of his feet and dried them with a rag. Then he rummaged around in his gear and pulled out two fist-sized tins. He put these to one side bundled up his gear in a tarp and secured it with a long thin rope. When that was done he unscrewed the lids of the tins and began coating himself with the thick white substance that was inside them. I thought it looked like zinc cream. He worked upwards from his feet and legs, paying particular attention to coat a pair of cysts on his stomach. When he was completely covered the man spent a while contorting himself, testing for uncovered places. Then he shoved his gun into the loop of ropes that ran around his gear and began shuffling away up the valley dragging it all about three or four metres behind him. I watched him until he passed out of sight and listened, until the only thing I could hear was the thunder and the wind blowing down the valley. Then I stood up and threw three stones at the cabin roof. When nobody came out to see what was going on, I charged down the slope and splashed into the water. The water was icy, but I didn't care. I just drank and drank and felt it bringing me back to life. When I was done, I sat down on a mossy rock and rested my legs. I was cold now and wanted to see if there was anything in the hut that could help me with that. But I was still worried about the man. Where had he gone? What was the meaning of his strange behaviour? Was he coming back? I knew that I wouldn't be able to rest until I had at least answered the last question, so I began creeping up the valley after him. After a few hundred metres, I caught sight of him disappearing around a kink in the valley. The valley had become smaller now, the sloping sides had turned into cliffs, and the gap between them narrowed to a stone's throw. But when I reached the next curve, I could see that the walls widened out again to form a roughly circular space, about 100 metres across. But there was something strange in the centre of it. A big, golden cube, around 7 metres across, was rotating slowly in the air above the valley floor. The zinc cream man was edging his way around it, "'obviously keeping as close to the cliffs "'and as far away from the cube as he could. "'As I watched him, he turned and gave a tug on the rope "'to pull his bundle free from a snag, "'and now I noticed a whole lot of other things "'scattered on the ground around him. "'An and billy, a few fiberglass tent spars, "'a mangled pack frame, two plastic bottles, tattered fabric fragments, and white things that looked like, "'no, that were, bones. "'I took a step back. "'There was something wrong here.' Not just strangeness, but danger. I could sense it in the base of my stomach and feel it in the static electricity tingle that was crawling through my hair. But even as I was noticing this, something else was happening. A noise was coming from the cube, a deep, grinding hum that grew until it filled the valley and made me want to stuff my fingers in my ears. Straight away the zinc cream man, who was now about halfway around the circle, dropped his rope and began to run. He was only able to cover a couple of metres before he slipped on the shale, now he got to his feet and tried to run back the way he had come, only to slip again. The air around him began rippling like heat shimmer off desert rocks. The noise became even louder, blaring like a truck horn. I wanted to turn and run too, but I was transfixed and horrified by the sight. The zinc cream man was running again. He was about two-thirds of the way back to the turn where I was standing. Then there was a flash, and everything went black. I lay on my back, opening and closing my eyes. It made no difference. Where was I? How long had I been lying here? Clearly it was long enough to become dark. But this was not like the grainy blue darkness of a normal night. This was a rusted tint black. When I tried pressing my palms hard against my eyes, the darkness bloomed into red clouds. It was more like... I sat up and began to hyperventilate, unable to accept the thought, trying to push it away from my mind, but it surged back as I remembered what had happened. There had been that cube, and that flash... What if it had burned out my retinas? Now I was on my feet. I wanted to run away from that horrible thought and that terrifying place. But even as I leaned forward to bolt, a new fear made me stop. I wasn't even sure what direction I was facing Now, What if I ran into the cliff? What if I ran forward toward the cube? I had to control myself. If I let myself go crazy, I would die. But I was blind. What if the man was there? What if that thing or whatever created it? I crouched down again and slapped myself with my hands. I couldn't let myself panic. I had to think. I had to listen. I had to work out where I was. I fought to steady my breath and counted to ten. Then I reached out my arms and turned in a slow circle. My fingers contacted the rock face on exactly the opposite side I was expecting. I had been turned around. I had been about to run in the wrong direction. I cursed myself for my stupidity. Why had I followed the man? What was I supposed to do now? Again, I tried to calm myself. I was still alive. My eyesight would return. Maybe it would only take a few minutes, or maybe I'd have to wait a few hours, but it would come good. I just needed to find somewhere to shelter, somewhere to sleep it off. But where? I was already cold now, and it felt like the air was getting colder. The answer was the hut, of course, but what would I find in there? What if the man came back? One thing at a time. I began to grope my way back down the valley, continually feeling for the cliff to reassure myself that I was headed in the right direction. It was slow and pretty scary. I kept thinking I was being followed and turning around to confront whatever was behind me. A few times I picked up rocks, one time tried leaping and striking in the direction that I thought I heard the noise, but I never connected, and I guess the sounds were just the echoes of my own footsteps. Yet I finally found myself back at the pool. Here again I had to fight my imagination. The thought of the zinc cream man creeping up on me as I drank paralyzed me for a while. But my thirst won out in the end. I dropped to my knees and drank and then washed my eyes, which unfortunately made no difference. Now I had to think about the hut. The thought of entering it blind scared me, and I cursed myself for not looking inside it earlier. But I was going to get hypothermia if I stayed out here. I listened for a while to the door creaking back and forth in the wind, and then stood up and felt my way over to it. Inside, the place smelled of timber and cold stone. I felt floorboards under my feet. Then my fingers found a heavy wooden table. Working back from there, I discovered a light switch beside the door, a cupboard, empty except for a long-handled shovel, a wood stove with a cast-iron saucepan, a wide bed with a couple of threadbare blankets, a bench with a metal basin containing two china cups, three bowls, and a spoon. A medium-sized safe with a dial in the centre of its door. A tatting book with a piece of string attached to its spine on top of the safe. The transmitter with a microphone and a spring-coil cable. Three chairs. Two glazed windows. But no food. I stifled my disappointment and returned to the safe. One of my uncle's hobbies before he had disappeared was opening old safes like this. I tried to remember what I'd seen him do and began to turn the dial with my ear pressed to the door. For a moment I thought I had something, a slight click when the dial went past one point. But I was never able to make anything of it. When I made further rotations, whether fast or slow, clockwise or anticlockwise, the same sound occurred at the same point. After that, I set myself to re-exploring the hut from ground up. First I got down on my hands and knees and worked across the floor. I looked for loose boards, no luck. I checked under the bed, the stove and the table, all I found were dust, spider webs, and a small pointed paring knife. Groping upwards, I came across the light switch again, and suddenly wondered where the battery might be stored. In Spillin, such things would typically be kept in a cupboard outside of the house. So I went out into the cold and found it, a tidy lean-to outhouse on the far side of the hut, containing a pair of light polymer batteries, as well as a whole wall of stacked firewood. Now if I could just find a way to make a fire... I'd be able to get wall. The air seemed like it was nighttime now, and that brought a fresh wave of fear. As I worked back around the house, I pictured myself fumbling through the darkness with the zinc cream man watching me. Then, when I was almost back, the door of the hut banged in the wind, and I started back so violently that I fell over. But everything seemed to be as I'd left it. After I retrieved the knife from the table and finished going around the hut, lunging blindly at every corner, I braced the door with the shovel and sat down to think about my next move. What was I to do now? I brought myself to a dead end here, with no way forward, or back, and no way to sustain myself where I was. The only resources I had discovered were the batteries and the firewood, and I had no way to make use of either. But maybe that wasn't completely true. If there was any charge left in the batteries, they might power the light and give me a chance to check my eyes. I found the switch and toggled it a few times, but I couldn't detect any change in either heat or light. It was a different matter when I turned my attention to the radio. When I twisted the leftmost knob above the microphone, there was a satisfying thunk and a swelling torrent of white noise. Along with all the kids from Spillin, I had been given a very basic introduction to such transceivers as part of my militia training. I knew the big dial on the right controlled the frequency and proceeded to search for a signal. And there it was, at the same place it had been when I first discovered it during my training. Amid all the hisses and pops, a calm spot where the noise was quieter. Maybe there was something even buried under the static. What was it? Was it a voice? Singing? When I moved the dial back and forth very slightly, I could feel the noise change like it was sliding into a groove. I picked up the microphone, thought for a moment and depressed the button. Hello? Can anyone hear me? Is this central? There was no noise. I clicked the button to try again, but paused and reconsidered. If it was a central station, did I want them to know about me? I was in a restricted zone. Their technology had just wrecked my vision. I released the button, and then, almost on a whim, I clicked it again. Three times quickly. Three times slowly. Three times quickly again. The extent of my Morse code. Nothing changed. I switched the unit off. Checked the light switch and made my way over to the bed. After I had pulled off my boots and placed a knife where I could grab it, I wrapped myself in the blankets and lay down. It was a long time before I managed to fall asleep. Though I curled up to retain my body warmth, the cold was more than a match for me. I lay there shivering and hungry, while creative and improbable schemes formed in my head about how to start a fire or get into the safe.